This is Radio Influence. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside. My name is David Penzer, and we are so glad that you were able to join us this week for this thing we call a podcast. Uh, If you remember, if you've been listening for a couple of months, if you remember, uh, we did an interview with J.J. Dillon, did about 90 minutes talking about his Hall of Fame career, and uh, J.J. at the time had promised I had a whole bunch of questions about him, his days as an executive for uh, WWF slash WWE, and then moving in 96 or 97, I believe we'll find out from JJ to WCW during the height of the Monday Night Wars. And a lot of stuff that I remember, uh, don't remember, uh, wasn't there obviously for the WWF stuff, but uh, a lot to ask him about, a lot of big angles and things that went down. And, uh, certainly remember the WCW stuff. So he had promised to come back. And so uh, we're going to have him back and we're going to talk exclusively pretty much about his time as an executive uh, between 1989 and 2001 uh, and and his memories of some of the biggest angles, some of the uh, ups and the downs of both the WWF and of course WCW. So we're going to have him on in, in a minute. Want to remind you, uh, got some uh, good feedback on my Ricky Steamboat discussion from last week. Want to thank those who uh, sent kind words. And even if you would have sent unkind words, I would still uh, appreciate your feedback. It's at David Penzer, all one word on Twitter, or at Penzer Ringside. Uh, You could reach me if you don't engage in the Twitterverse at David Penzer, all one word, at Radio influence.com david penzer radio influence.com but hit me up on twitter uh really like to go back and forth on twitter and uh and love for you to join us once again if you enjoy our podcast be sure to subscribe if you haven't already tell your friends and neighbors uh as well and if uh they let you leave a review uh where you listen uh we'd love to get a review from you as well so uh we are um i'm finally learning twitter and i'm uh figuring it all out, social media. And so um, starting to engage a little bit more. So uh, we hope that you come engage with us and we'll have a fun time. Right now, without further ado, because we have so much to talk about, a 12-year time period where some of the biggest things in WCW and WWF went down and he was behind the scenes for all of it. Please welcome back to City Ringside, legendary Hall of Famer, J.J. Dillon. A couple of months ago, we had our next guest on, and we talked. We spent about ninety minutes actually talking about his Hall of Fame legendary career, uh, inside and outside the ring, and we wrapped it up on him going to WWF at the time and becoming an executive. And uh, he was nice enough back then to promise us that he would come back and talk about his years as an executive in WWF uh, and WCW. So, I want to welcome back. Uh, multi-Hall of Famer, 
the legendary J.J. Dillon. Welcome back to City Ringside. J.J., you're a man of your word. Yes, happy to be on City Ringside. I promised, and, and here I am. You, I, I never doubted in my mind. Now if, only, now if I could only get Cornette to uh, return my call, but that's a whole other story. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's a, he's a busy, and I'm not the... Not not that I need to defend him, but he's incredibly busy, certainly more so than I am and in demand by everywhere because everyone everywhere because he's, uh, you know, he's such a, a great personality from our industry and everybody wants some some of his time and wants to talk to him. Some I'm, I'm sure at some point you'll hook up with him and, and it'll be very entertaining uh, as a fan to listen to. Yeah, we did part one and uh, and. Uh we did, we had just gotten to the uh, Midnight Express. Uh, I didn't even get to ask him about when Arn and Tully left. Uh, we had just gotten to the Midnight Express versus Midnight Express feud, and uh, he had to run and said he'd come back again and play down the road. And, uh, and we're still uh, we're still waiting, Jim. If you're listening, which I highly doubt, uh, reach out to me. But right now we're with JJ. So JJ. Uh, you, in 1989, you left uh, the confines of the NWA, which had just been sold to Turner Broadcasting, um, to go to WWF in an executive role. You spoke at the end of our last podcast about um, uh, coming up and fl- him flying you up and meeting in his house. By the way, nice house. Beautiful house in Greenwich. Okay. <laughs> in anything and everything in Greenwich, Connecticut, is uh, everything is zoned uh, two, uh, two acres and... I think the prices all start at uh, two million and upwards. So trust me, uh, it's in a private estate. You got to go through a guard gate and be on a list to get in there. And it's a uh, it's a beautiful home, which uh, certainly Vince McMahon could afford, and and he worked hard to to get to that level. And I I'm happy for him. Sure, I'd love to get the listing on that one, but that's a whole other story. Um, what what exactly was your role that you accepted? Um, I believe at some point you were the VP of uh, talent relations, uh, but I, I'm not sure if that's what you started out as. Actually, I was approached because it, the company had grown so big, so fast, and Vince McMahon was hands-on with every aspect of it. So all of the the uh, pay-per-views, and they were they were, were going from three or four majors a year to monthly pay-per-views. They were running live events, and Vince, like I say, was hands-on with everything, including posters to promote every event had to be approved by him. And he uh, he and Pat were doing everything, and they were running three towns a night on tour. And I was approached by the late Terry Garvin, who was very close with Pat. And told me that my name had been mentioned several times and some favorable, favorable things were said about me in terms of my attention to detail and my history in the business and that I basically had been everywhere and worked for everybody. And so my body of work, uh, uh, I guess, in terms of a resume would uh, would have been very attractive. And they were interested in me. But but like you say, Turner had just bought Crockett and they were worried uh because a lot of people were under contract to Crockett that the Turner then uh, took over and they didn't want to create any legal problems. So they said that they couldn't call me. I had to call them. And so I called Terry Garvin and he said, hold on a minute. And he put me on speakerphone and Pat was in the office next door. And that's how the whole thing uh, got started. And so that, that led to them uh, making me a formal offer. 
And um, they they told me, they said, you know, you can go back because Turner had just bought the operation from Crockett. And if I wanted to go back and see what kind of offer they would make to retain my services, the and I, and I that's never been how I've done my business. Uh, I make decisions based on uh, the personal contact with the people that I'm talking to. And if I have a comfort level, um, it's more than, than, you know, would maybe I have done a little bit better financially. I, you know, I'll never know because I didn't choose to go down that avenue. But I was made a, a, a very, very fair offer. And uh, I said I, I wanted to uh, talk it over with Lindsay, who we weren't yet married at that point. And of course, we were married 14 years and since of uh, divorce, but we're, we're still friends. And But I wanted to go and talk it over with her because it was a major career move for me. And, and the next day I called and said, okay, I don't, I don't even, I'm not even interested in, in WCW uh, or Turner making a counteroffer uh, that the, what they offered me was very fair. And, and really, they were the, they were the brand, the, the true global brand in wrestling. So in terms of prestige to been recruited by them and, and, and given a very attractive offer, I thought was, uh, was, uh, something I was very proud of in and of itself. Absolutely. A thousand percent. So, uh, what did you, so you just came on board. You didn't really have like a distinct title or, or they just, you know, just needed help. And so you just went in and helped Pat and Terry or, or did they hire you for a particular thing? Just curious. It was actually, Vince was hands-on in every aspect of the operation. So during the week, uh, he would be at the office first thing in the morning there all day. And if there was any meeting on marketing or pay-per-view or getting approval for posters for the next paper, Vince was hands-on and gave his uh, had to give his approval. And all of the creative, because he was actually running three towns a night, so the pay-per-views that were just at that point, I think, going from four majors a year to doing a monthly pay-per-view and then doing three tours a night, uh, everything was being done by Vincent Pat and the, the workload had become, uh, you know, just uh, all consuming and they needed help. And some things, uh, some people said some very complimentary things about me, which uh, Terry Garvin passed on to me and I made the phone call and met Vince in his house and was basically offered a job on the spot and didn't go back to WCW to see what they were, they wanted. Uh, uh, Vince impressed me with uh, his presentation and what he offered me. And I made a decision on that basis and never looked back. So I bet when you, you know, Diamond Dallas Page coined the, ter- the term self high five, I bet you uh, when you heard, it started hearing, um, Jim Hurd stories down in Atlanta. You probably gave yourself a self high five for that move. Well, yeah, and <laughs> I, I've, ne- you know, I never have been one to, you know, to look over my shoulder. And uh, I met Jim Hurd one time that he he came in, and the Turner people were excited about him coming on board because they were a a, a broadcast company. And Hurd had worked for Sam Muchnick in St. Louis and had some television uh, experience with Sam Muchnick in St. Louis. And therefore, being with Sam, had exposure to the wrestling side of, uh, of television. So the, the people at Turner were thrilled that, oh, well, here's one of our people 
that's a television guy, but has some wrestling uh, knowledge too. So, and of course, when I met him, uh, I realized that, you know, there were a lot of people in the wrestling business that, that had devoted their lives just to wrestling and television was always an important part of, uh, of promoting live events, pay-per-views and the product in general. And, you know, Jim Hurd just was basically in terms of the wrestling business, really a novice. And I, <laughs> You're being I, kind. I'm being kind. <laughs> yes. And my old, my philosophy is always that if I don't have something really complimentary to say, I usually don't have anything to say. And so that, like you say, that's complimentary and I'm speaking from the heart. And as I reflect back career wise, I think it was a good decision on my part to uh, to move on. Uh, so this is what I went back and did. And uh, like you said, uh, Vince made the final decision, whether it was creative or a poster or, or no matter what it was. Um, but so what I did is I wrote down some of the, the more historical things that happened uh, during your tenure uh, that, that people remember that had a, uh, you know, that changed the business. And I'm just going to bring up a topic and you could tell me, you know, what your involvement was, if any, and if not, what your thoughts were at the time, because you lived it. You got to live it in an inner sanctum of only, you know, maybe half a dozen, a dozen people at the most. So uh, I, I just love to get your your thoughts on it. The first one being um, uh, 1990 uh, WrestleMania five, uh, the move uh, Hogan had been the, the world champion, obviously, since uh, they went uh, in when they went a competition against all the other territories and they made a move to the ultimate warrior and they changed the title at WrestleMania. Uh, just curious what your involvement was that if, if any, and what your thoughts were at the time, the, the formula for the WWF slash WWE was that Vince was the final say and rightfully so. Cause he, he basically, you know, owned the company and he had a lot of uh, a lot of confidence in in Pat Patterson's input, and I I have publicly said many times, and will repeat it here, that one of the most brilliant minds that I have ever been around, 50, 60 years around the wrestling business, one of the most brilliant minds, and a, and a, and an in ring talent too. There was a main eventer, you know, with Ray Stevens. Uh, and Bachwinkle, both on uh, in in San Francisco and and also in Minneapolis. And I'm talking about Pat Patterson. Absolutely. He had a brilliant, brilliant mind for the business, and he understood Vince as I. But everything was done creatively at Vince's home on the weekends. So we would be in the office all week, suit and tie, and on the weekends on Saturday and Sunday. We would be at Vince's home in Greenwich, casual clothes. We in the in the uh, in the warm weather, we would work outside. He had a pool with a uh, a covered covered veranda with a bank of phones. So I really got to watch not so much Shane, but certainly Stephanie grow up from a young girl splashing in the pool with her her girlfriends as she became a young woman. And because we did a lot of our work outside, and then in the winter time. When the weather got cold, we would actually work in Vince's formal dining room. And so I spent a lot of time with Vince and a lot of time with Pat. 
And the formula there was that Pat totally understood Vince's likes and dislikes. And he was smart enough to know that if something seemed like a good idea, but really went against Vince's history of things that he liked and disliked, Pat wouldn't even put it on the table. He would, he would concentrate his, his uh, thoughts and energy on the things that he knew from past history that Vince would like. And I learned a lot just from watching that dynamic. And Pat really deserves so much credit for the success of the WWF slash WWE. And the formula there was, you know, we, we would have these huge ledgers that we would book the, the TVs from, book the live events from. Vince would approve the main event and, and always usually at least the second match, sometimes the third match for a major town. And then we had a talent roster that we would keep track of who was working how many nights and make sure that we spread it around. And Pat and I would balance out the rest of the cards, which then auto- automatically got Vince's approval because he was focused on the main events. But it was a formula that really worked well because Pat understood Vince, knew what he liked. And I learned a lot from Pat Patterson. And as I've said to me, he, and I've worked around some of the truly great minds. I was, Eddie Graham, I always looked at as my mentor, uh, uh, certainly being around Dusty Rhodes, being around Bill Watts that were really products of, of Eddie Graham that he molded their careers. And a lot of that, if you connect the dots back, I think connect to Dory Funk Sr., and Amarillo, I, 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 it, it, that's the common, if you trace it back far enough, that you'll find that Eddie Graham was a, was a top talent in Amarillo. And Bill Watts worked there. And then when they went to Florida, of course, that's where Eddie then put his roots down. And he was such a brilliant mind. But, and you can see a lot of it in Terry Funk. I was only I only met Senior one time, and I was I started in uh, in Charlotte, and I spent a little over two years working there before I got my break in the Canadian Maritimes. And Dory Funk was the NWA champion for like a four year, not four full calendar years, but it spread the end of like four months of one year, the next full year, the next full year, and then you know four or six months spread over over four years. Uh, he was, he was a great champion, because when you looked at Dory Funk Jr. when he walked in the door, he didn't necessarily light up a room. And if anything, people would look at him and say, you know, I think I could maybe beat him. And that is a that is a quality that is really a necessary for a successful world champion. Somebody that has the credibility has the ability to be on the road and away from home so often to be able to go out with Jack Briscoe and have 60-minute matches all over the place. And I sat through several of them, and you would think, oh, as long as you've been in the business, as much as you've seen, I mean, you actually sat there and and enjoyed it and learned from the experience? And the answer is, oh, absolutely, yes. That I would be on earlier, I would go out and I would go to the top of the bleachers after the lights went out, and I would sit there for the introductions and watch the entire 60 minutes and be in awe of the ability of, of, of both men. As it just, you know, 
Dory was the champion, and for a while, you know, Jack Briscoe was the challenger. And the last five minutes would always be at the end of the match, it would be, oh, if they only had a minute or two, Jack would be the world champion. And they were just masters at, at telling that story. And it's a lost art that to be able to go out there for 60 minutes and hold the attention of a crowd. And, and, and there has to be a time in the middle where you can't hold that intensity for 60 minutes, but you also have to be giving them something where you don't lose their interest. So you get them in the beginning, there's that middle section, and then you build up momentum to that last five minutes and people are on the edge of their seats. And when they would finish 60 minutes and the bell would ring, people would throw their arms. Oh, geez, if we could just have another 30 seconds or a minute, Jack would be champion. And they, they were just, that's like they were met for each other and had classic, classic matches. It's funny. It's funny. You mentioned that, uh, we just had, a, as you're very familiar with, Barry Rose and I do a, a championship wrestling from Florida Fan Fest uh, once every six months or so. And we just had, uh, this past weekend, we had Bob Roop here. And Bob, <laughs> it's it's almost like you and Bob are reading from the same script. He talked about not only uh, did he would he go up in the bleachers and watch the main events pretty much every night, especially he especially pointed out the Briscoe-Funk uh, uh, matches and about how, you know, Jack would get him in the figure four with a minute left and, you know, the people would go nuts and, and, and they were sure that he was going to, he was going to, you know, get Dory to submit, but the time would run out. And he said it was like you just said, he said it was a formula that worked uh, unbelievably. And, and, and Dory would lay there at the end in total exhaustion and they would bring the championship belt in that he couldn't even stand up and get his hand raised. They would have to lay the strap across him. And there would be Jack standing over him as if to say, if we had another 30 seconds, you wouldn't still hold that belt. That was the, the, the thought that was in your mind so that they could bring that match back and you would pay to see it again because yeah. it just, they had a chemistry between them that uh, I don't know. I can't remember. And I've seen a lot of matches and I've seen virtually all the greats in the industry, but they had a chemistry. I don't know that it's ever been matched. Yeah, the, almost word for word what, what Bob uh, Roop said uh, this past weekend. Uh, it's uncanny. Um, so go, going back to night, I love talking about history, but going back to 1990, was there any worry that you remember about taking the belt off Hogan and having Warrior beat him clean in Toronto? Uh, not really, because I, I don't remember all the politics of it, but, um, you know, Warrior... Hulk had a history that Warrior didn't, but the one thing that Warrior had was that it factor, and sometimes it's defined as charisma. Sometimes charisma charisma doesn't even uh, accurately define it, but his music would play, and he would tear through that curtain and run to the ring with those streamers around his biceps and the, the, the tails of the streamers would tag behind. He would hit that ring and he would shake the top rope and he'd be, he'd be bowed back. I, I don't know that I ever saw anybody that could electrify a crowd like he could. And it wasn't like when the bell rang, he lost it all. I mean, he didn't have the innate wrestling uh, foundation that a lot of other guys did, 
but he had that something extra that few other people had. And that's why he was, uh, you know, he was so successful. And Hulk was kind of a safety net that Vince could always go back to. But at some point, you had to, to try to look beyond Hulk and see who out there could be the next one to be anointed. And uh, I think Warrior came probably as close as anybody to being that person. You know, it's funny, JJ, totally off uh, topic, but, uh, you know, we, we don't have a, a strict, uh, uh, I, you know, layout here. But I always, I, as a fan and somebody who's, who's announced a lot of these guys, not Warrior, actually, I probably did uh, in WCW. I forgot about that. But I, I, often wonder, I often wonder if things, if careers would have been the same if people were given different music. I wonder if, for instance, if, uh, how, how would Randy Savage have been without per- pop and circumstances? Still great wrestler, still charismatic, but the music was, was the final part of the package. Rick Flair, two thousand and one, same thing. Space Odyssey, yeah. And the the a guy named Jim, I think Jim Johnson, I think it was Jim Johnson. He he wrote a lot of original music that was then um, I think copyrighted by the, the promotion then to be the theme music for a lot of guys. And it's amazing how it's like. And the Bushwhackers was a great example. The first note or two of their music. The people became, the fans became so conditioned to know who that was that then they would erupt for that next five or 10 seconds till the curtains flew open and the bushwhackers would come through with their, with their signature arms up and down and they would go around to the fans. They would grab a fan and lick the side of their face and do some things that I don't know if you could do that today, but boy, it no. sure worked then. No, you it sure can't. worked then. No, you know, I don't think you could either. You might remember this. Sticking on the uh, topic of music for a second, uh, entrance music. You might remember this. Sting originally uh, had uh, actually similar entrance music to what the Ultimate Warrior ended up with, um, and it was so almost part of his package, quote unquote. And WCW uh, at one point they wanted to. Uh, make their own music and they had Michael Hayes and some people go in and record songs and they, they changed his music from that really high energy music to that song, a man called sting, which is probably the dumbest entrance song. In the history of mankind. <laughs> and no, but it, it took a toll, man. It took a toll on, I, I, you know, sting had, had the charisma and the, and the, uh, and the ability to, to, to stay relevant and, and, you know, and then changed into the crow and, and had, you know, uh, probably his best years, but, that man called Sting took something out of that whole package. And uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a lot about the music. And you're right, a lot with the Ultimate Warrior, you know, the armbands and, the mus- and, his, and his muscularity and his look and the paint, which looked awesome, uh, all those different colors, uh, you know, obviously added to it. But that music is important, and I think people forget that. Maybe because I'm an announcer, I, 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 I pay more attention to it. So, uh uh, you were there. You were there at ringside for a lot of this, where you heard the the music, could see the entrance, and you could also you were surrounded all four corners by the audience to see and hear the reaction. And it, guys became strongly identifiable to their music, and it was a complete package that really revolutionized the industry. Because in the early early days, there was no interest music. It sure. became part of a part of a transition as the music became a big part of it 
really did. And kind of started out, I don't know if it's the first one, but kind of started out with the Freebirds uh, playing that legendary song in the background when Michael and Terry and Buddy cut the promos. And I still say Freebird was pretty good, but I'll still say to this day, my favorite, uh, not that anybody asked, but I'm going to throw it in there anyway, my favorite still is Pop and Circumstance as far as as as, uh, entrance songs go. I still get goosebumps. Even if I'm at a graduation, I hear pop circumstances, and I think back about, you know, the, the many times, you know, that, that I, li- I watched it as a kid and then got to announce it as an, as an adult uh, in WCW. Uh, it's just such a, it was just perfect for him, and uh, it's just great entrance music, and that's my favorite to this day. Um, but, you know, creatively, if you, Randy was such a, a high-energy guy, that if you were making a selection of music, I think you could very easily have gone past pomp and circumstance and pick something else. But in hindsight, I completely agree with you that I too, when I hear that music for, for a lot of different things, you, I, I, my mind immediately goes to the macho man. It really does. It was that identifiable with him. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you when I finally realized I was living my dream in this business is growing up watching Randy Savage and, and, and his entrance music with the lead up, bum, 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 that slow lead up. And when he came to WCW and I got to announce, you know, with that lead up and I'd always wait for the lead up to, to end and the, the main part of the song to kick in before I do the announcement. I, I, I have goosebumps to this day thinking about it. So you could imagine how I felt, you know, in 1994 when, when it was happening, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, just some, one of those memories. You know, you you have memories like the Madison Square Garden that you talked about on the last one that you'll never forget, and and that's just one, you know, totally off topic, but I don't care. That's just one that I'll never I'll never forget. Uh, that's sort of when I it was one of the kind of like pinch myself um, um at my dreaming moment. Uh, and you're not alone. You're not alone. And it's it's like if if you never heard that song and and understood how strongly it associated with the macho man later on you could very easily have picked something else something sure. more up upbeat something more that you would have thought geez he rushes to he's so high energy the music has to be high energy too but that music fit him perfectly and you can't think of it in terms of being an immediate high energy energy entrance because it wasn't but it was perfect for him perfect so moving on um you guys, somebody probably Pat Patterson had the uh, had the decision to turn Sergeant Slaughter heel in the middle of the Iraq War and put him against Hulk Hogan at uh, WrestleMania in '91. Uh, what were your thoughts on that at the time? And do you remember why they had to move it to a smaller building? Because certain different people say different reasons, and I was just curious what your memory was. Well, th- this is uh, Bob Remus. Sergeant Slaughter was one of the great. Uh, performers in the history of our business. And sometimes we in this industry have a tendency to try to mirror the real political environment at that, at that particular time, because we think that then we're, we're basically in the shadow of, of real life. And that's going to make whatever you're doing more significant because it's like another chapter of what's going on in real life. But for some reason that 
Sergeant Slaughter was so identifiable with our flag and with that character. And when they tried to turn him from day one, I think the public, not, not I think, I, I, I firmly believe that the people were not willing to accept it. And how, no matter how terrible some of the things he did or stepping on the flag or some of the other things, no, it, it, as somebody else, maybe that would have had impact. Slaughter was so identifiable with being a hero to our country that they, they just, it never, it never bore fruit like everybody that was on the creative side really assumed that it would. It just didn't happen. Sometimes shock value is good, and sometimes shock value turns on you. But, uh, uh, yeah, they even brought in the Iron Sheik, uh, who was from uh, Iraq, uh, to, uh, to, to align with Slaughter, and that, that didn't work either, quite frankly. Nope. Do, nope. Uh, do, do you remember why they moved? It was supposed to be at an outdoor stadium in L.A., and they, they moved it into, like, a 12,000-seat indoor arena. There's uh, some people who say they did that because it wasn't drawing, and it wasn't going to draw in a big building. And then there's others who swear that regardless, even if you would have sold out, that the amount of security you would have need to hire on WWE's dime uh, was going to make it something that was untenable. Do you remember what if, it could have been both reasons, but do you remember why they moved it? You've been around the business long enough. I think you could answer that question. When you think, just think about it. You know the answer without asking me. The worst thing that you would want was something that you were so invested in and and had to had to follow through. And if you could see by the immediate response to, to, to interest in tickets, it would have been, it would have been promotionally suicide and suicide to the, to the, the people in the, to have gone in a huge outdoor arena that ended up empty. And, and it's like the, the great American bash, the series of great American bash later, it was kind of something that Dusty wanted to, to put his signature on the map. And we went to a lot of, uh, a lot of stadiums and brought in really hot country artists to, to do a concert in conjunction with the matches. And if you were brutally honest about it, it never, it never had the success that was envisioned and that we all hoped it would have. It was respectable, but it wasn't what we originally had hoped it would be. You and know, that, that's because the fans are the ones that are the ultimate judge and jury. They buy the tickets. Sure. You know, you might, you might think it's obvious and it is obvious, uh, a, a question like that, but it's funny in this, in this day and age of pod, uh, zillion, everybody has a podcast, which, uh, certainly I am a, uh, symbol of and uh also the fact that you know everybody's on twitter and 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 you know that that's actually a point of contention these days that's why i asked you the question there's you know there's certain people who will say one thing and then certain people who were involved who will swear the opposite so that's like the big one of the big million dollar questions these days so you got to love the society that we're in right now where uh security or the fact that it didn't draw is is what's in people's minds in 2000 and 18, but um, our, our profession was always built on controversy. You know that it right. was like nothing was ever cut and dry. There always had to be two sides of the story. And, and in a perfect world, 
you would have strong balance on both sides and you would have a great following on both sides that the end result was a was a, a either a, an arena or a ballpark or a stadium jammed full of people and sometimes it came close and sometimes it didn't on the other side of the spectrum obviously slaughter didn't work as a heel like you thought on the other side of the spectrum very soon after that the undertaker debuted and uh has now gone on to become you know uh you know i I don't know if you could compare him to a hogan you know but he's he's, i would he's much of a long-term draw as anybody's been in this business and a legend um did you did you think uh, when you saw him come out uh, with the gimmick? Did you think that this was going to be a big deal? You know, I wasn't sure because it it was presented in such a way that there could have been uh, a segment of our audience and and a lot, a lot of part of our audience, especially in the South, uh, uh, are faith based. And there was a lot of people that could look, could have looked at that initially and feel that that was in bad taste that it crossed the line. And that was a risk. And it's like somebody that's, you know, being raised from the dead. And you, you, you can't, the, the Christian faith is based on Jesus Christ, who was, was, uh, nailed to a cross and, and was buried and three days later came back. And so there were, there were some people that thought, ah, this is too close to, to the, to the faith of uh, a great large segment of our population that it's very risky to go down that road. You know, I totally never thought of that. That's, and it's a brilliant point. And my producer looked at me when you said that at the same time in mouth, I never thought of that. and 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 it's just uh, you're absolutely right. You're taking a chance of alienating a large portion of the fan base, and uh, and and it worked. Um, in 1991, at the Survivor Series, there was a match with Hogan and Undertaker that ended in a disputed finish. Uh, they did a a pay per view, and I, and I could only and and this is what I wanted to ask you about because I could only imagine this was like a test to see if something like this would work. It was called This Tuesday in Texas. If a man called Sting is the worst name for a wrestling entrance music ever, this Tuesday in Texas is the worst name for a pay-per-view ever. But what was the thought process behind that? Was it to see if you could get the, the same amount of people to buy a, a rematch on a pay-per-view and a couple days later? Ah, uh, geez, I don't remember. But just in theory, without having a specific... When you've been around the business as long as I did, or have been, and, and I... I, I, I've been so fortunate to have been in historical moments that, you know, people say, I mean, how could you not remember that? Well, <laughs> wow, I can't remember what I had for breakfast, but it's, it, there, and when you think about every promotion, every promotion, and this is true of every place that I've ever been, and I know you, it's going to, you're, you're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, that every, pay-per-view or main event match was going to be quote unquote the greatest ever sure now how can something then turn around and a month later be the greatest ever but our audience forgiving maybe was forgiving as a general i'm talking about wrestling fans that accepted the hype and didn't come back and say well you said it was going to be this and boy it certainly wasn't 
fans wanted to 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 accept what they wanted to accept and you had to be careful of not to 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 over embellish something wrestling fans were accepting of the fact that you you hyped everything that's kind of the nature of the business and i think part of the appeal of wrestling is that fans would get excited about that hype and not hold you accountable. Ah, you said the same thing last month. <laughs> Fans don't, they get, something happens and now it's history. Sure. And they focus on the next big thing coming along. And thank goodness that, that, that that's, that's how wrestling fans, traditional wrestling fans mindset works. Otherwise you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation because nobody be listening. Right. Absolutely. Um, it's funny you mentioned not remembering. Don't feel bad. I, w- I was on another podcast about a month ago, and and somebody asked me about the segment on Raw of Raw on Nitro when Hall and Nash wrestled three strippers, porn stars, and I had no memory of it. And I I googled it and I found it, and I kind of still had no memory of it. <laughs> I don't either, so don't feel bad. Okay, I don't either. Uh, but uh it was uh, i did see it and it uh it was it was very unmemorable so uh so that's probably why but you know there's certain things people ask me about and i remember it like it was yesterday and certain things people asked me about and i had no recollection whatsoever uh speaking of history uh rick flair comes to wwf uh as the former uh manager of him in the four horsemen and somebody that was in the inside circle of wwf where you did you have any involvement in that um, not directly. No. Um, and I sometimes have to, I have a tendency to always be looking forward and, and not, and, and again, it kind of seems contradictory to logic. If anybody's been in the business, you want to learn by your history. You want to learn not only by your successes, but you also want to learn about your failures. Why did something not live up to the expectations or the hype? But I, my focus is is pretty much always been not overanalyzing anything from the past, but but looking forward, which means that even subconsciously you 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 have to draw on your accumulated history of everything you've done up to that point. So it's not like it's not consequential, but it's just it's like the tools in your toolbox. You you open the toolbox and you see a lot of things in there that oh boy if i ever need that that i'm glad that's in there and you can't remember when the last time you used it but the next time you need it it's very very uh, gratifying to know that ah i'm glad i saved that and it's in there because right now i i need it and there it is and that's how the wrestling business is that that you you and i, I guess i have to speak for myself um all that history is in there, even if I don't consciously draw from it each time, there are points where I draw from part of it, and I'm fortunate to have the ability to retain it a, a, not a lot of that. And I guess it's just another word really for experience. There is no substitute, basically in anything that you do in life, with experience. That with experience you're going you're if you draw on that experience, looking forward, you're going to get better because of the experience that you had. 
And you may not think of it that way, but ultimately that's really how it, how it plays out, that you get better at what you're doing as a result of your successes and your failures and learning from both. Knowing Flair like you did and being so close to, to him, uh, did you think that was really going to be a game changer to you know maybe seal the deal of putting Turner out of business when Flair came? Uh, no. Because it, it's you, if you do something with a thought in mind that you're going to have a negative impact on the other guy and put him out of business, if you're spending time in that thought process, you're not doing yourself justice. In other words, there's only so many hours in the day and so much information that, that you can absorb and and make decisions from is prior experience important yes but it's something that's kind of there and it's in your memory bank and sometimes it's nice to have somebody remind you of something and say oh yeah boy that was that was so good at the time and you relive that moment again but you don't i never wanted to dwell on the history as important as the history is going forward I always wanted to emphasize my thought process on looking forward and what was going on. And, and unconsciously, I was using my past experience, both successes and failures, to really guide me going forward. And, and I only speak for myself, but that's what worked for me. Do you have any recollection why Hogan and Flair didn't happen at WrestleMania 8? It's like if you could put a perfect match at the time on a platter to me, it would have been at least Hogan versus Flair. Do you have any recollection of why that didn't happen? I don't know that Vince McMahon would ever uh, say that 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 he uttered these words. And I'm not really sure about who said it first, but I heard it a lot more, repeated a lot more than maybe people would want to. And that was the phrase... This match was made five years too late. Uh-huh. That 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 you waited those five years, and the magic wasn't there. If you somehow could have erased the five years before that and done it at that point, the results would have been so far different to the positive side than the way they ended. And and the explanation was, you know. We waited five years too long to make this happen. And I, and I think that really is briefly and concisely as you can, just, that, that was the truth. Interesting because uh, uh, Kevin Sullivan and WCW didn't think the same thing because about 10 years later, they, they, uh, they did that match and I believe drew some money with it. But that's, that's interesting. I never knew that. Um, Lex Luger got the big push after Hulk went uh, left. Um, did uh, if you remember on the uh, Intrepid and uh, uh, was able to uh, do the Le- uh, Lex Express tour? Um, it it seemed like the plan was to eventually have him win the belt at WrestleMania and defend the freedom of the USA with the red, white, and blue. Do you remember if that was ever the plan? And if 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 so, do you remember why they changed it? I'm sure that your description is probably close, may have been verbalized in a different way, but that was the mindset. And 
I will go back to a comment that I've made earlier that the that the greatest creative plans when they succeed are something to smile and stick your chest out and kind of like give that little nod about, yeah, I was a part of the the creative process that uh, thought this was a great idea and got behind and pushed it. None of us want to look at something that, uh, let's see, how's a play? Something that was mildly successful. We don't want to say that it fell flat in his face, but it certainly wasn't what we envisioned that it would be. And I and I think I would just find different ways to keep repeating myself. And I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I get it. And in a couple, in a couple of uh, uh, one, I'm going to ask one question. Then after that, we're going to talk about a couple of things that happened that that were hugely successful and changed the actual business. But um. And, and watch your watch. Don't wear me out because I, <laughs> I, I, my thought process as, as the day wanes on uh, slows down and I don't want the fans to be disappointed and, and think that, uh, that I don't have high energy. No, we're, I do. We're, only, we're, we're more than halfway done. Uh, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, the, one of the reasons you were brought in was because they started uh, doing the in-your-house pay-per-views. How did that change the booking dynamic because you were – booking for t- TV for house shows and 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 four big pay-per-views a, a year, and then all of a sudden you're booking pay-per-view to pay-per-view month to month, which is something they still do. How did that change the dynamic, and, and how much harder was it? Or maybe it was easier. Uh, I don't know that it was easier. It was a lot of pressure. But Vince, I remember when we used to do TV, when I first went there every third week, and we would do three weeks of TV uh, on a Monday for superstars and three weeks for challenge on a Tuesday. And if it followed a pay-per-view on a Sunday, that was, uh, exhaustive for lack of a better way to, I mean, when you were done Tuesday after a pay-per-view and three hours of superstar and three hours of challenge and the prep that went into writing all those shows was, was totally exhausted. Uh, it would be like, you know, find me an island somewhere where I could go and and I would never want to be created, quoted as something saying, get 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 me give me a couple days away from wrestling. Because you never get away from it. Right. And I know Vince used to have a a legal tablet on, on his nightstand with a pencil there. And he would wake up in the middle of the night, either having dreamed or consciously thought of something. And he would sit up, turn the light on, and scribble down some notes for fear that come morning he would think, is this something that I really thought of, or am I just kind of remembering bits and parts of it that were really a dream? And a lot of uh, ideas that were later followed up on and became incredibly successful were, were things that, in a quiet moment, and I think we've all, anybody that you, you never get away from the business, it's 24 seven. And you, you may think, which is true that you need a break from it sometimes, or you can't, you can't live it 24 seven with that same degree of intensity every day. You, you have to ebb and flow. And, um, but it's, it, it, and it, it, it becomes your life. 
you and it doesn't matter where you were. And I, a lot of people, like when I went to work for Vince, would ask me about something that I saw on WCW and having just left there. And I would say, I didn't see it because I don't watch it. Right. And the reason being that I would focus 100% of my mindset, my energy, and my focus on where I was and who was signing my check and being able to put all that energy into being the absolute best I could be with all the experience that I had to fall upon me looking forward. Absolutely. And that, that formula always worked for me. So two names that uh, towards the end of your WWE stint, uh, two names, they, two people debuted uh, under totally different names, and both of them went on to sort of change their gimmick and, and, and become two of the probably the top five stars in the history of the business. I'm talking about uh, Steve Austin, who debuted as the ringmaster, uh, managed by Ted DiBiase, and Rocky Maivia, who later on became The Rock, who's the Rock. Yep. now now the you know the the biggest uh, movie star in, in in you know going today. And 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 I wouldn't be surprised if the guy ended up president of the United States. Quite frankly, that uh, could well that could well be. He he's uh, and I wrestled his grandfather. Samoan High Chief Peter Maivia wrestled his father, Rocky Johnson, when he was a huge star, a Florida champion. And then I don't know that I ever wrestled The Rock, but when he, The Rock and Mark Henry both came on board and I I wasn't the person that actually was totally responsible for hiring both of them, but I was part of that decision process. Right. And I remember like it was yesterday of going to that, that first, and I don't know if it was a TV or if it was just like a live event, like the garden or somewhere. And, um, the rock was there and he said to me, pulled me off to the side and he said, could you, I, I know you go back to my father and my grandfather. So I know that I can kind of uh, open up and be myself and speak honestly with you. And I also know that, that, you know, you have some influence. You're, you're part of the hierarchy. And he said, can you make some phone calls and, and help get me out of here? I'm that unhappy. Oh my God. Yeah. And I said, okay, let's just not, not go crazy for a minute. And help me understand why you feel that way. And he said, well, all my time in the business, from the time that I got out of college, I was figured in in Florida and things have always worked out. And the one thing that I always had was I always had money in my pocket. And, and that made me feel secure at that moment. And he said, right now, I don't have $2 to rub against each other in my pocket. And I just feel vulnerable. This is him privately now talking to me. And he said, can you get me out of here? I know you know everybody and can make some calls and make it happen. I said, okay, I'm glad that you feel uh, good about being able to open up and talk honestly with me. Because, yes, I I do go back to your grandfather, your father, and, and I have experienced virtually everything that 
that you're experiencing right now. What I can tell you is that at this particular moment, you can't begin to imagine what lays in front of you in terms of success and financial rewards. And for you to have a momentary moment where you where it hasn't happened yet, you know it's been talked about, and because you don't have $2 in your pocket, this is your lowest low. Give me five minutes. Put it on hold. I'll see you here in five minutes. I came back in five minutes. I said, give me your hand. And I took a wad of maybe I don't remember what the exact. And I said, now close your hand around that. Now put your hand in your pocket. Tell me you feel a little different. And he started to smile and he said, yeah, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to pay for my room or my car payment. And he said, "Ah." and he said, that's why you are where you are in this business, because you've experienced all this yourself. I don't have to explain it to you. You've lived it yourself and you understand better than anybody else that's here what what my mindset was. And in that moment, just putting some cash in his hand and in his pocket changed his whole mental attitude. And he was okay. And that bought some time for him to see the road to success start to unfold in front of him. And I, I... it was, uh, he, he then was on the upswing a couple years later. And I had a, uh, I had a couple photos taken that are, I'm looking at my, on my, up of here on my, my wall. I won with Hulk. I won with rock. I won with flair. I won with Danny Hodge. I have one with the late Bruno Sammartino. I have one with Harley race. I have one with the undertaker. I have one with Stone Cold Steve Austin. These are all guys that I intersected with, that I had a picture taken behind, made it into an 8 by 10 how then personalized and signed it to me, and had it professionally framed. And these are my memories that that just, any time that I look back, not, I, I never have any moments where I look back at my career and don't have feel-good moments. But man, looking at that every day makes me realize how fortunate I have been, how lucky I have been that, that so many good things happened to me in my career. And it's because I love this business. I, uh, nobody has worked harder than me. A lot of people have a lot more ability than I have, but nobody wanted it more than I did or worked harder than I did. And those, those moments early on, um, and when, and when I brought the, it was two years till I got that picture with the rock and we were down in Miami when we were, the weekend we were inducted into hall of fame and asked him to, to, to sign that picture. And we, he pulled me off privately and he put that picture down and put his hands on his, on his cheeks, his fists. And he stared at that picture for what seemed like minutes before he signed it. And he said, do you remember? when this picture was taken and and he reminded me of that conversation and how I probably could have talked for an hour to try and rationalize why he shouldn't feel the way he did, but been around the business long enough that I, I cut right to the 
Chase to knew that he had no money in his pocket. And that's why he felt bad at that moment. And all I needed was five minutes to get somewhere and get a pocket full of cash and come back and put it in his hand and completely change his mindset. That's an amazing story. Uh, and, it, you know, you talk about changing history. You know, if, if you'd have made that call and maybe got him a gig in, in, in WCW for 50 grand a year, uh, you know, the rock may never have happened. So uh, that's amazing. And something else I don't know if you know, um, but the name of his production company is called Seven Bucks Pro- Productions. Because, <laughs> and and he, sa- he tells people the reason it, uh, that he named it that is because at his lowest, when he first got in the wrestling business, he had seven bucks in his pocket. and He'll never forget how he felt. So uh, that all kind of comes full circle. And um, uh, really, really cool story. I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that. And yeah. To think how history could have been changed. Um, and I don't, I don't like to, to think that, that that was a crossroad that, that had I not um, reacted the way that I did, that it would have changed history. Because he, he's, he's got so much talent that even if it hadn't happened to that moment, it eventually would have happened because the guy just, like you say, he's the biggest box office movie attraction as well as being a superstar. You know, Hulk was the first one to make that transition into movies. And that's not to slight Hulk in any way, but nobody became a box office movie star like The Rock. Oh, yeah. And, and it's because he he was the right size. He wasn't too tall, too short. He was multi-ethnic. All the things that that when you sit back and look at it and say, why is this guy so successful? These are all parts of the agreement, agreeing, uh, ingredients. And, and, and. Because he is who he is. And I heard a story. It's it's been more than a year. I don't know how long it's been. Where every time I've ever been around Rock, he's never changed. Success has not consumed him. He, He understands his history. And... I heard a a story in Florida where, uh, God, and and I'm, it's a guy that, that lived in, lives in, uh, one of the legends that like a lot of guys live in Florida and the guy rock pulled up in a pickup truck, got out of the pickup truck and whoever it was, he says, how you like my new truck? And he looked at it and he said, and this is somebody who was, you know, paid his dues, was part of our history. And I, I feel bad that I, that the name, because that would really help to complete the whole story. But he looked at that truck and he said, God, that truck is beautiful. So you really think so? You really like it? Yeah. Who wouldn't like it? He said, hold your hand out. And Rock took the keys and dropped the keys in his palm, closed his hand, and said, it's yours. Yeah, I think he's done that with a lot of guys. A lot yes. Of pay, paying it forward. Uh, yep. I honestly think if he wants to be, that he's smart enough, charismatic enough, intelligent enough, well-spoken enough, he could be the president of the United States. Now, I don't know if he want, who wants to do that job, but I honestly uh, uh, think he could, he could, he could win if, uh, if, if, he, if he wanted it. But uh, – yeah, time will tell on that. So 
you uh you leave WWE um was there a reason behind it uh just time you know it, it's like I was there seven a little over seven years and I'd been seven years in WCW you know and they talk the they talk about the marriages um, people's marriages and the, there's this what they call a seven-year itch and there seems to be and for me it's like I go somewhere because somebody's interested in me and I enjoy great success there, but it's like, and I don't know why seven years I would draw a circle around it, but it just seems like it reaches a point where it's time to move on and do something else. And so I, I have often been approached because people can't call you if you're under contract or they're always afraid somebody's going to sue them. Right. But, you know, just like when I went to, to work for Vince the first time, it was, you know, Terry Garvin was very close to Pat, who I had only met Pat one time when he came to visit Terry, I think, in Kansas City. And and that's when they were, like I say, booking three towns a night, and Vince was hands-on with everything, and they were just swamped with work and needed help. But we're also very... Um, they weren't just going to open the door to hire somebody and hope it would work out. They didn't. They 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 were willing to just keep keep to the grindstone until they found the right person. And apparently, enough people had mentioned my name as a candidate that that my personality was such that Vince would would because I went back and I started with Vince's father, so I had a history, and that they said that. They, you know, they were told that they were convinced that I would work well with Vince and that he would be happy with me and the same thing with Pat. And um, so I've been lucky all my life that way, that I've loved this business. And I've my personality is such that, that there are all kinds, as you know, all kinds of personalities in this business. And when you're in the creative side, you got to figure a way to get along with all of them. Sure. Because they all they all have something to offer, they all have different needs, and usually you're in a position where you've got to interact with all of these people. They can't just be people that share a personality like yours, or somebody that other uh, under other circumstances would never in a million years be your friend. But these are important people to the business, so you got to figure a way to work with them. And my my, I don't know whether it's my personality, whether whatever it is. I've never seen uh, you angry. Uh, I've yeah. seen I've seen you shake your head and you know like what the hell you know uh, you know why are they doing that you know sort of off to the side. But I, I don't think you know uh, I've ever seen you angry. You know you know everybody in this business usually has to blow off some steam, and uh, and and I don't think I've ever seen you blow off steam at least in in front of uh, you know in, in front of a large group of people. Um, and, and maybe I, I think that's the reputation that I have in the industry. And it's not because I don't have feelings or that I don't have emotions because that's our business is, is selling emotion. And so I understand, I understand that, but I've always been a businessman and, and never, and I, I think a part of my success may, may go back to those first five years that I was a full-time wrestler. And enjoyed some success that everywhere I went, I held a major title. And so once I focused my attention on the creative side of it, 
I think unconsciously I thought, well, unlike a lot of other guys who who haven't had my foundation, feel that if they get in over their head or it doesn't work out, well, what else are they going to do? And I, I always had in my subconscious that, that I would survive in the business because my needs, financial needs and other things are not such, it wasn't about the big house on the hill or driving the, the, uh, you know, the Mercedes or whatever. I, I just, that's just me. And so my, my things in life, you know, family was always important to me. I wanted the best for my family. And I think if you can, if, if, if that's the way you're, you know, you're etched out where it's not about personal rewards and, and material things and jewelry and clothes, which if those were the things that were important to me, I, I couldn't have, I couldn't have ba- abandoned them if they were part of my core personality, but they weren't. It, it was, I got great satisfaction out of in my own quiet way of developing a reputation for having success in this business because of my temperament, because of my personality, and because of my history, that people wanted me to have a chance because, and, I, and a lot of it was luck too. I just, I, I never was somewhere where I just fell flat on my face. And, and a lot of it was because there were people around me who who helped me succeed. It wasn't because I was this great genius because I don't think I was an M. So uh, you're on air roll. You come to WCW, you're on air roll is as a commissioner. Uh, what was uh, your official office role? I was primarily brought in to work behind the scenes. And I always had a stellar reputation for, for, attention to details, for seeing the big picture, and for being able to coexist and get along with talent, some of which were fiery and temperamental, some of which were very laid back and easy. I could get along with all of them. And you came to the right place. (laughs) I came to the, you know, I was, uh, (laughs) I I stepped into the, the, to, to the loony business and, all these things that I brought with me were part of just my core personality. It wasn't like that. I said, okay, I need to be this and I need to be that, or I'm not going to succeed because I think at the end of the day, you are what you are and you can't, you can temporarily give the appearance of being something, but if it's not really you, that's going to come out in time. And like you, you made a point a little bit earlier that really meant a lot to me. And you, and you said that you have never seen me angry. No. Nope. And there have been moments where I have been frustrated. I don't know if I would ever go to the point of being angry. But from the, in this business, if you say that you were never at a moment where you were frustrated about someone or something or some scenario, man, you, you, <laughs> you're kidding yourself because we're surrounded by that. And it's, I had the ability to, to process all that and to be able to get past it. Sure. And I, as I look back, I, I've had a, a phenomenal career. And a lot of it I attribute to my personality and my mindset and to luck. Really luck. A couple more questions. Um, 
on WWE. I know you don't. You don't. You said you don't like to talk bad about people, so I, I, I don't. Not looking for uh, uh, shit on Eric Bischoff. Answer. Uh, a lot of time has passed, but on WWE.com and a where are they now type uh, article, you said, uh, quote, and I quote you, Eric had his agenda and I wasn't necessarily in sync with what he was doing. What were you guys out of sync about? Wow. I think that statement encompasses my mindset without going into any more detail. Uh, Eric had qualities that I don't possess. And by that, I mean, he's a, he's a really good looking guy, had youth and he had the ability to get with the hierarchy at TBS beyond just the one brand of WCW, but to, to, to go to the board meetings and be able to interact with those other people where I was looked at as a wrestling guy who had, a stellar reputation in the industry, uh, but I was looked at as kind of pigeonholed as a wrestling guy. Eric wasn't. Eric, yes, came from Vern Gagne, but he he could he could go to board meetings with people that had nothing to do with wrestling and fit in and be successful. Sure. And I I I I think that's what all it comes down to. I never could have been what Eric Bischoff became and didn't, um, uh, you know, was, wasn't critical of, I was, I'm, I was never uh, uh, jealous of people around me that had success, especially in this business, because there were people who had qualities and personalities and possessed certain characteristics that I didn't. And some of those characteristics were important of them moving up the pecking order. And Eric was a perfect fit into the TBS hierarchy. It almost sounds, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean no, to. No, I never, I never would have achieved what he did because he had those qualities and I didn't. I'm a, I'm a, I was and always will be and was a wrestling guy. He was more than that. It sounds like you, what you're saying, and it makes total sense, is he was everything that uh, Jim Hurd they thought Jim Hurd was going to be, but it didn't work out that way. Yes, I think that says it very well. And and um, there were times where I had frustrations with Eric because I, even unconsciously, if I thought he fast-tracked to success in the wrestling business where I had paid my dues forever. But it wasn't with any animosity that I looked at him that way. That That was just... Probably in, in private moments, that's how I thought of this situation. And I never looked at people who had success and moved up the ladder and, and being either critical or jealous or um, in envy of those people. I, I, I think Eric, I could not have done what Eric, because I didn't have his personality. I didn't have his flair for, for being able to get along with other business people. He had the looks. He had everything going for him. And um, if I ever said anything that was um, as either perceived or construed to be negative about Eric, um, they were wrong. I, 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 and I, maybe in a, we talk about frustrations, there were moments where maybe I, I might have had frustrations, 
but it was never personal. If Eric walked into this room right now, I would get up with a smile on my face, walk up, and I'd put my hand out whether he put his hand out first or not and pat him on the back and say, I'm happy to see your credit to the business. That's sure. how I generally feel. Sure. So uh, probably uh, one of your least pleasant moments in the business. Uh, I got two more questions because I'm not going to end with your least favorite moment in the business. But And maybe I'm wrong, but there was a time where Eric was sent home. Vince Russo came in, but then he went home. And it sort of fell on you and Kevin Sullivan and Bill Bush, uh, who was sort of the money guy, uh, to take over the reins. And that is when the uh, guys who were no, became known as the Radicals, plus Shane Douglas and a couple more threatened to walk, and they didn't walk. But Eddie Guerrero and Perry Saturn, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko. Uh, tell me about, uh, you know, what you remember about that experience because, you know, uh, you it changed the business in some ways, but in some ways you were sort of the you know kind of stuck in a, in in a, in a situation that you had no con- real control over. Quite frankly, yeah. When Vince, I I was uh, responsible for Vince Russo coming in. That I was approached that by a third party who who was there at the time who said they were friends with him and that he was miserable and wanting so bad to get out but that he couldn't call anybody. Hey, Somebody hey, had to call JJ, him. JJ, not but, to interrupt you, I don't want to be rude, but the, the interesting news is he's still miserable all these years later, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> but any, anyway, it, it's like, um, and I don't remember who called who. I didn't, I, anyway, but a meeting was set up at the Marriott at the airport in Atlanta. I remember and, it. And Ed Ferrara came. Every federal Ed Ferrara came with him because they were like a package deal. Right. And it, it was intended to be a kayfabe meeting that, that we hoped wouldn't get out that if, that if we didn't come to, to satisfactory terms that no one would know the meeting ever took place and he could stay where he was and hope that things took a turn for the better. And so the meeting took place and, and Bill Bush I was kind of a, a go-between, and Bill Bush was there, and then, and everything went up until that they were going to talk about their money deal. I excused myself from the room because that was a discussion between uh, Vince and Ed and Bill Bush that was beyond the scope of what my responsibilities were, and I never. Uh, you know, was felt that anybody should not get the best deal that they can possibly get. And of course, I was happy that they came to terms, whatever they were to this day, I don't even know exactly what they were, but we we came on board and it, it, where it took a turn, not for the better was once Vince was there and I was so totally behind him my philosophy on how television in the wrestling business should be structured. And Kevin and Sullivan and I were in lockstep with each other. And Vince was on a whole nother plane <laughs> planet uh, of what he thought the television, because I looked at, I'm, I'm, I guess old school from the point that, that you needed television to drive live events and pay-per-views because that's where your money was. 
And that's where we kind of got off on a bad. And and the problem was I was instrumental in bringing him in. I'm sure he had a big money deal. And then at that point, he had a contract where they were paying him so much that for Bill Bush to put him on on the sidelines and Bischoff on the sidelines, in hindsight, was though it seemed like something that had to be done at that moment, it was not a, a very long-term solution because somebody higher up the food chain was going to look at how much those checks were going to those guys each week and figuring, what are we paying for them, paying them for if we don't have them in the mainstream doing something? So that that's how it kind of kind of played out. As far as the guy, you know, just a little backstory to that to that day because uh, I was good friends with those guys, and um, uh, Vince had 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 convinced the guys, the Benoits and the uh, the the Deans and the Eddies, uh, the Saturns, the Shane Douglases, that uh, you know the Calls and the Nashes and those guys, uh, they were going to be on the same level. He was going to give the, everybody an opportunity. Uh, because there was different levels, uh, you know, back in 96, 97. And, you know, you had sort of the cruiserweights. Those are the guys we're talking about. And then you had the Halls, the Nashes, the Hulks, the Stings, the Lugers. And um, and so when, when Vince went away, those guys all didn't trust that, that, uh, that they were going to get their opportunity, even though Chris Benoit <laughs> had the world heavyweight title in his, in his, uh, in his suitcase. Um, so did you just, was it, was it just a, you know, at, at that point you just decided, look, if you're not happy, go. You know, behind, yeah. Behind the scenes, politics has always been a part of our business. It just seemed in hindsight at that particular period was, was much more intense. Plus the big difference was in prior experience, I had always worked like with the Crockett family or where, where they were their roots were the wrestling business. And suddenly I was in an environment where that didn't exist. It was a, a division, one single division of a broadcast company. And so there were, there were ears at, uh, uh, further up the chain that could be influenced by smart people who knew what stories to tell that I'd never had to deal with that, uh, before and and I was confident that if given time that Kevin Sullivan and I had had enough experience and enough success and enough track record that we would have been all right we'd have done okay I believe that and I begged those guys not to go but they didn't listen to me and uh and the rest is history and they they ended up doing okay for themselves although the Benoit story as we all know it ended horribly and yeah less, less said about that the better um uh before we get to the end of WCW, um, uh, something probably a better uh, memory than than the stuff we were just talking about, and it's one of my favorite Nitro moments, if not my favorite Nitro moment. And part of it is cool because I used to drive with Arn Anderson, so he practiced his whole speech. Uh, I was his audience of one. Um, so I'm just wondering what your memories are of that Horseman reunion. And, um, is that Greenville, South Carolina? Greenville, South Carolina, when... When mm-hmm. when Arn brought you out and and uh, and and the new Horseman and uh, and then you know did you know did the little pat on the head on my my Alzheimer's is getting to me, ladies and gentlemen, Ric Flair and Flair came out, place went nuts, 
Uh, he was crying. Arn was crying. Yep. You were crying. I was we were crying. All crying. And yeah. uh, and and then Eric came out, and what ended up being kind of a shoot, a work shoot, you know, uh, you know, and Flair going, "Fire me! I'm already fired." I'm just, I'm, I'm uh, one of my favorite Nitro moments, uh, and like I said, partly because I got to be a little involved with it. Just wondering what your thoughts on that were, you know, coming full circle with the four horsemen after all that time. <sighs> you know, it, it, it's like I'm often asked on, you know, Vera, I did an interview earlier today, and at some point in there, it, it, it kind of winds down with uh, the, the era of the four horsemen. And it was certainly the, the pinnacle of my career. And one of the reasons that it was so successful was because of the spontaneity of it. It wasn't a creative idea that, that somebody had and, and then they, they tweaked from week to week. It was a real-life situation of people who were legitimately successful in this business that had common interests, enjoyed being around each other. And a lot of times you get away from the arena, you know, the thought is, well, God, I'm, I'm around them more in my family. The last thing I wanted was be around them. And we enjoyed a camaraderie that even when we had days off around the holiday, somebody would have a get-together. We'd all get together. And then another night, it would be somebody else. And then we would, we all, we, and I can't think of another time in my whole career where the dynamics were such that we genuinely enjoyed not only great success that's maybe unparalleled in the business. I mean, other people have used that statement, but we generally enjoyed being around each other. And I think that was part of why we were so successful because we, we did have that feeling of uh, camaraderie with each other. So as I look back, that was, uh, I had success all throughout my career at different levels at different times, but what a, what a way to end it. And I'm looking at a, a picture, two pictures right in front of me. One was a cover of the magazine, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, that has all of us with Barry, everybody with a championship belt over their shoulder, and I'm sitting in the front holding up the four-finger symbol of excellence. And another is there was a private shoot that they did that they were going to make posters from, and I'm why it never went beyond that, I don't know. But it was a set, and we all had tuxedos. They were all told to rent tuxedos. And it was Arn and Tully and Rick and Luger and myself. And there's there's bodies laying on the ground. There's a table with a guy looks like he's the table turned on a round table with a white cloth on it laying off to its side. And there's a, a knife stuck in the table. And there's food all over the floor. And there's a chandelier. And next to the chandelier is a pair of legs hanging down wearing white wrestling boots. It's the most bizarre picture that I think I've ever seen. And we're, I've got this look of, they took a bunch of pictures and I've got this look of expression as if, ah! and Flair's not, he wasn't the person in front. The foremost front, front person was actually Arn with Tully next to him and Luger's behind him. And I, every time I look at that picture, I smile and I see something. It's all it's signed by everybody, professionally framed. And I look at that picture. And if there was ever a picture that just described that moment of my career and the joy that I felt, that, that would be it. And I don't know that there's any more. I don't think it was ever made into. I know it wasn't ever made into a poster. And I have the original. And the original 
was on Frances Crockett's wall in her office. And when Crockett uh, closed down that office, I asked Frances if I could have that picture, and she she gave it to me and said, I want you to have it. And I, it's the only one. I've never seen it anywhere else. And it wow. just describes that moment, the look on Arn's face, the smile on Luger's face, Rick being Rick standing behind, and Tully <laughs> standing there holding the lapels of his tuxedo. If you ever come here and see that picture, you'll you'll understand. It just captured a moment that was uh, got a great time in my career. Yeah, well, I, I didn't get to I didn't get to be around you in the heyday, but uh, but I got to experience a little a little Horseman in uh, in in WCW, and uh, and that 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 reunion to me uh, was uh, was an awesome moment, and. Uh, uh, I also got to experience a little bit of what you probably experienced back in the heyday of very little sleep when I was driving, <laughs> when I was driving with Rick and Arn. But uh, uh, we were both younger then, and uh, we could probably both handle it. Hey, uh, JJ, last time we let you go, uh, I had a whole other list of these questions to ask you about your behind-the-scenes executive roles, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you were able to come back and, and answer them. Some of the stories uh, are, are things I don't, I don't know – that have ever been told some stories that I heard tonight. I don't know. have ever been told before. So and you know what we need to do. We, we need to, uh, to, to commit to uh, coming back with, uh, with a volume three where we can sit down and, uh, and you could pull, keep those, keep those notes and thoughts. And, uh, at another time when my, my mind is fresh and, and, and I think we could do another round that, uh, I, I think I'm hopeful that the fans, uh, will want to, indulge us and sit with us and and listen to the stories well you've seen so much you know from the you know 60s and 70s all the way to the you know to the the monday night wars and everything in between uh but basically a walking encyclopedia uh if only you you didn't mind not if, if only you didn't mind talking bad about people uh uh but no i'm kidding i'm joking that's not your way of doing things and i know no. that uh but yeah, uh, definitely a trilogy it will be. So uh, you just let me know when uh, when when your mind is fresh, and uh, I'll I'll go back to the drawing board and I'll find a whole bunch more stuff that uh, that I could uh, pick your brain about because I could pick your brain for for uh, six hours uh, easy and and still have another uh, two pages of questions. Uh, well, I I've, I've I have enjoyed this. I I'm always comfortable because I've I've known you for. A long time. We've made trips down the road together. I respect you and and you know what you've done in the business and people that respect the business. I respect those people, and you're you're one of them. And uh, you know it's it's just like uh, getting prepared for this. Obviously, you know you look back and and have done your research, and we it's not been any wasted time. And I have a tendency. Somebody used to told me that Nick Bockwinkle this way that you ask him what time it is and before they tell you that I got to explain to you how the watch <laughs> how the watch is put together, <laughs> and I have a bad habit of doing that. I uh, I get a question and I and I go off on a tangent and and uh, but I've enjoyed this conversation and I would love to to uh, to to get together and continue it. Uh, I don't want the people to say, "Oh my God, doesn't he ever shut up?" <laughs> but no. Uh, no, and uh, thank you for the kind words, and uh, and we will be seeing each other, I believe, based on the advertising uh, in a couple of months in Chicago at yes. the StarCast event. So I'm looking forward to seeing you then, 
And uh, you never know, maybe we could do something live there. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, that because the who's who of uh, the industry are going to be there, and uh, it's like a podcast convention, and and then it's grown from that. And I'm looking forward to that. It'd be great to get together. All right. Thank you for thank you for this episode. I, uh, you know, like I say, you've done your research. Uh, We and you lived a lot of it, so you're not talking in theory. Uh, You've experienced a lot of it, and then you've done a lot of research on other things where you weren't personally involved, and hopefully. uh, Hopefully your audience uh, has hung with us and and enjoyed this conversation and we'll get together and continue it. Thank you, sir. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you and doing this again down the road. Thank you. I want to thank J.J. Dillon for the insight into his executive career working behind the scenes and... Uh, a lot of great stuff in there. I uh, love the the rock story. I don't know that that's ever been told before. If if so, I've never heard it. Great story, and you know he's he's a modest guy, but that definitely could have changed history. He uh, easily could have picked up the phone and uh, made a phone call to get him to go somewhere else, and uh, or Japan. And uh, but like he said, uh, uh, Dwayne Johnson had the ability to become a star, no matter what the circumstance was. Interesting also to hear his frank uh, thoughts on what went wrong with turning Sergeant Slaughter and also why uh, Claire Hogan didn't happen at WrestleMania 8. I wonder if Vince McMahon ever regretted thinking that it was five years too late because uh, many years later they were still drawing money for a different company. But we thank him and uh, uh, looking forward to doing a part three down the road. Maybe we'll open it up for you guys to be able to ask questions via social media. We talked about it at the beginning of the show. If you haven't already, hit me up on Twitter, at David Penzer or at Penzer Ringside. Hit me up at both. Uh, I do most of my uh, stuff through my David Penzer account. Uh, But uh, for shows goings on, you could also uh, catch us at at Penzer Ringside. yeah, hit us up on Twitter. Love to, uh, to to communicate with you. Like I said earlier, I'm just getting to learn social media. And while there's a lot of negative things about social media that we won't get into that I stay away from, uh, the positive thing is it lets you interact with people who you don't know who might be fans or might follow you or, or, or just people that like the podcast or even if you if you can't stand the podcast, subscribe. Be sure to subscribe first, uh, and then you can tell me what's wrong with it. But uh, uh, we thank you for all your input all the time. If if you ever have any questions about my days in WCW, XWF, uh, TNA, or anything else I've done, uh, always happy to answer questions as well. So uh, great uh, inform- informative discussion with JJ Dillon. Uh, great stories. And that's what we strive to do in the coming weeks. Uh, This summer, we're going to be talking to uh, Ted DiBiase. Uh, We're going to be talking to Steve Kern, one of the best storytellers out there. Uh, And uh, I heard him tell some stories this weekend at an event that were just, uh, uh, you know, tears coming down your eyes. So uh, we're hoping to get him on real soon. Also going to talk to SoCal Val in the month of July. I believe hers is an interesting story and uh, uh, hasn't been told enough. So uh, all that and so much more still working on getting Eric Bischoff. Uh, He probably uh, 
uh, after he does four hour podcasts of his own, uh, hesitant to come on other podcasts, but we're working to get him and, uh, love to have him on to talk WCW. If not, I will be hosting the death of WCW, uh, panel at Starcast. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, Looking forward to seeing a lot of old friends and making some connections to get uh, interviews from some of the stars, some of the guys I haven't seen before. It's amazing how those Legends of Wrestling events turned into, uh, you know, getting Ricky the Dragon Steamboat on, getting Lex Luger on, getting Ted DiBiase on, and so many others. So, uh, hey, folks, until next time, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, my name is David Penzer. I'm still sitting ringside. Take care. Follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer. Also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer Ringside. You've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. This is a dark delight with Frankenbeans quick fix on Radio Influence. Going back to Jeff Sessions for a second, I, I know that there's a lot of people who don't trust him. And uh, from the from the get go, there's been just as many people saying to get rid of Sessions uh, as there have been people say to trust him. All I'll say is that the fact that he has been so to himself and quiet has given me the most reason to trust that he's doing something. And his silence has actually been the biggest thing that has given me confidence in what might be coming. Let me tell you, I'm so thankful that you said that because it's lost on a lot of people. And I think it's a lot of the reason why is because of the spin that we get from like the mainstream, even supposedly conservative media. You know, I'm sorry to say Sean Hannity is one of the biggest offenders of this attacking sessions for not doing anything for sitting on his hands. You're absolutely right. This guy runs a leak proof justice department. We had no idea there was a U.S. attorney working with Michael Horowitz until he told us. Dark to Light with Frank and Beans can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.